Good day everyone, welcome to Be Nudged by Maya, a show about understanding human behavior, conscious marketing, and so much more. My name is Arjun Manohar, and I'm going to be your host for the day. Joining me today is a very personal friend, mentor, and colleague of mine, Mr. Ben Henson. Ben has been a strategic leader in the field of marketing and analytics for about 10 years now. He's worked with all the big names you can imagine. EY, Mutland Partners, WPP, just to name a few. He's an unbelievably talented and creative person. He's also a giving person as he's been an avid social worker with the New York Care Society since 2006. He's helped kids read, write, and learn English by taking ESL classes. He's also a basketball coach, a sport that he's very passionate about and more on this later. But most notably was his work at the New York Presbyterian Psychology Board where he helped people dealing with trauma and helped them guide them back into life. If this wasn't impressive enough, Ben is also a small business owner and an extremely creative blogger. So it's with absolute pleasure that I welcome Mr. Ben Henson today. And today we're going to be speaking about how to breathe life into marketing strategy through insights and not just data. So sit back, take notes. It is going to be a long one, but trust me, it is going to be worth it. So Ben, how do you manage your time? How do you be a social worker, an extremely creative blogger, a small business owner, all while having extremely demanding professional career? <laughs> well, thanks, Arjun. Um, well, I'm uh, uh, regarding doing all these multiple things. Um, I think I am a workhorse and I, I work. I don't know. I don't have an off switch sometimes. Um, so, and that's for more, for a lot of people who don't understand how the concept of how people can work beyond boundaries, it's kind of baffling to them. Yeah. Um, who say, Oh, you can't, how do you do all the stuff? You don't have time to do work or how do you do all the stuff? You don't have time to write a book. I can actually do all those things, uh, because I, I try to manage my time effectively. Um, and you'll be amazed at what you can accomplish if you manage your time well. Um, so I try to manage my time very well. I don't I don't spend my time on things that that are not part of my focal points. Um, I don't I don't spend a lot of time and, and, and I'm not criticizing this, but I, I don't really watch much TV, for example. I, I'm not a TV person. You you I hardly ever sit in front of television to watch it. Um, I don't really, you know, when I'm in an office. Uh, I, I, I'm not much of a small talk person. So, I mean, I might do it for social reasons and to get into, you know, just to be nice here and there, but I tend to spend a lot of time working and stuff like that. So uh, when you, when you cut back on a lot of the certain parts of your, your life, you, you realize that a lot of time actually frees up to do other things. Um, so as far as like the New York, the charitable work I've done in the past, um, I have not done. I've, 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 I need to get back into it. I've, I've, I've actually done a lot more than what you listed. Um, I've done work with prisons. I used to go to a, a juvenile detention center in, in, uh, in the Bronx called um, Horizons, and sit down with um, troubled youth, uh, kids who were in the juvie system, to kind of mentor them and, and speak to them um, about what I do and, and that sort of thing. That was a commitment I made once a month back a few years ago. Um, and I've also, uh, uh, done a lot of uh, work with, um, in my native country of Ghana, uh, my mom used to be very active. She's retired now, but she was very active with, uh, child trafficking and, uh, mm -hmm. children who were being trafficked to either work, exploited to work in like cocoa farms and things of that nature. And she was kind of uh, taken up off the trafficking circuit and um, helping put them in schools and get them clothed. So whenever I went back home to my native Ghana, I also helped my mom here and there with like clothes donations and things like that. So yeah, it's, it's always been in my system to, to help others. Um, and as far as to your last question about how do I make the time to uh, push my creative side while having this very, very, very demanding job in my professional life. Um, Again, you have to prioritize, you know, um, that sometimes with my, my jobs, I, I find, obviously I'm loyal to my employers and stuff. So 
uh, and my clients. So those always come first. So depending on the project I'm working on, my creative side may, may take a little hit here and there. Um, but I always try to never drop the ball. So whenever I'm done with my duties to my clients, I switch my focus to my creative projects and I work on those in my free time. Um, so again, it's not about how you use your time. Some people on the weekends might go out for brunch. Some people might go out to uh, play games or sit around, go to the beach. I do those things too, but I do them after I've done my, my creative project work. So it's just how you use your time and how you plan, really. That's what it comes down to. So, but yeah, and just having a good work ethic and being, and being disciplined. That's it. That's interesting. Because yeah. uh, if you look back into your time, you mentioned you, your hometown of Ghana mm -hmm. coming to U.S. And you've been in U.S. for a considerable amount of time. Mm -hmm. right? That switch, was that an easy switch? What drove you to come to U.S.? Mm -hmm. And uh, how was it? Wow, that's a deep question, Arjun. Um, I uh, I came to the U.S. when I was a, a young teenager, um, and um, I when I came here, uh, I came. I don't want to get into too many personal details on that particular front, but when I came here, um, it, it was uh, not really planned, and um, uh, I ended up going to, ended up in school, staying in school here. Um, uh, I was involved in a, in a car accident when I was a teenager here. And that, 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 that accident kind of changed the trajectory of my life. And um, mm -hmm. that kind of started my life in the United States, more or less. And um, mm -hmm. I had to take some time off to recover from the car accident. And because of that, I, I was not able to go back to school in Ghana. So I had to start school here. Um, so that was a bit of a transition because I was kind of, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, it was like a, a sudden change. It wasn't like I, a gradual change where I had the time to say goodbye to friends and that sort of thing. It was very sudden. So that was a bit of, I had to grow up really fast. In, in other words, I had to grow up really, really fast. Um, and maybe that's, that may be, Part of the driving force behind my high output you know i as i think back um so i had to grow up really fast um culturally and also in a new environment with new people new culture um as a black person i wasn't really in ghana race racism and race is not really a big thing there but in america mm -hmm. it's a huge thing here so that was a huge awakening for me as well um, because I had to deal with not only the Im the immigrants discrimination, but also the black discrimination as well. So that was a huge thing as well to to come to terms with. So um, yeah, it was just it was an adjustment period. And I think considering everything I've had to deal with, I think I turned out quite okay. So uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I would say much more than okay. Yeah. And if you go back to when I first met you, we actually met at Iquanti, and for those who's listening. Iquanti is a performance marketing agency based out of Jersey. Clientele includes premier banking, finance, security institutions across the world. You currently hold the position of director of strategy and analytics, and I really cannot think of anyone better suited for this position. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the first time, yeah, the first time I spoke to you was uh, during our project. And what, what stood out to me is the, that gift, that inherent gift that you had, that you had the ability mm -hmm. to create strategies that was holistic and encompassing, mm -hmm. while also being extremely detailed and thorough. Mm -hmm. It's almost like you had like an internal zoom slider mm -hmm. and where you could like really zoom in, delve deep and get those granular insight while simultaneously panning out to see the overarching picture. Mm -hmm. And I think that analogy is like really uncanny. Thank you very much. I appreciate that compliment. Thank you very much. Oh, you're absolutely welcome. But to be honest, like you said, you know, I only know a fraction of what your achievements and there's so much more to unpack. Mm -hmm. But so um happy to have you on this call. I'm excited, I'm elated. Mm. So shall we get started? Yes, sir. Let's do it. And thanks thanks again for the compliments. I really appreciate that. Thank you. You're welcome. So Ben, having spent the amount of time you spend in this industry, how would you characterize the current state of marketing? And how much has marketing really changed? Um, 
Yeah, great question. So my first professional exposure to the world of marketing and advertising was back in 2010. Um, I studied marketing at university, but back then there, were, there really wasn't much to offer in terms of digital marketing. When I first started working in advertising as an analyst, the leading voice on web analytics was a man by the name of Avinash Koshik. I don't know if you know who he is. Um, he's pretty old school. Um, and he had this book, uh, Web Analytics 2.0, I think it was called, or something to that effect. And I learned a lot of my foundational web analytics knowledge through him. Um, and then I grew from there. Uh, analytics and marketing has definitely evolved uh, in line with the rapid changes we see with technology. So, for example, when I started working in web analytics, uh, all the website tagging and tagging is just simply JavaScript code that you put on a, you put on a website to monitor uh, user behavior and, and so on and so forth. So if you use Google Analytics, you, you have to embed JavaScript code to track your behavior. So um, when I started working web analytics, all the website tagging was done manually. Um, and I remember when these automated tagging solutions like Google and Adobe Tag Manager first hit the market. I was around when they first came out. Um, so I find it funny these days when I'm uh, mentoring younger analysts and that and that's all they know. And it's like, hey, you know, before you, this came out, you know, there was a time when this didn't exist. Yeah. Um, so over the years, we've seen innovations when it comes to digital, um, uh, things like digital attribution, which is essentially analyzing the touch points across channels that contribute to a conversion, right? So when a person is, is um, if, I'm serving, if I'm running a marketing program, obviously I, I have different marketing channels I am uh, uh, considering to use to bring, to acquire people to invest in my service or product. And I can do it through search, display, TV, um, uh, SEO, you name it, right? Email, so on and so forth. So attribution from a digital perspective is looking at the, the different touch points that lead to that final conversion when I, when I get you, or either as a lead or a sale, and how do we weight, uh, uh, assign value to these touch points? And that helps you with um, allocating your media spend, your budget, right? So we've seen attribution technology come up over the years. We've seen media mix modeling, which is more of a top-down approach that advertisers is more on the statistical modeling side of things that advertisers can use that takes in a lot of like offline factors like TV, uh, GRPs, um, macroeconomic factors, like for example, COVID, right? And things like that to assign, help marketers assign their budgets more like a, a, a quarterly slash annual basis. Um, we've seen uh, from a data management perspective, we've seen the entry of new types of technologies called CDPs um, uh, or customer data platforms, which uh, propose to ingest disparate data sources to create these holistic customer profiles. We've seen, um, and, and then the big topic today, one big topic today is identity resolution, right? So just to give you backdrop to that, um, when it comes to advertising for many years, the cookie, and a cookie is simply a string of text that a server shares with a browser that is commonly used as a user ID. The cookie was the main way web browsers tracked, personalized, and saved information about each user's session. Now, there were three kinds of cookies. There are three kinds of cookies. There are session cookies, which are temporary uh, and memorize your online activities. There are persistent cookies, otherwise known as first-party cookies, which are saved on your hard drive for a longer period of time and track your online preferences. And then there are third-party cookies, also called tracking cookies, which is what a lot of advertisers use to collect additional information about a person and serve them ads on websites. So when you use your phone and you know, you're know served an ad based on something you viewed or whatever, it's usually third-party cookies that are running behind the scenes. So that last type of cookie, right, the third-party cookie, is a big topic in advertising today, right? So Google announced not too long ago that they'll be phasing out third-party cookies on Chrome browsers uh, by the year 2022. And, and Safari and, and Firefox have already done it already. Um, 
So between now and 2022, there's a lot of work being done and new technologies being created to ensure that the eventual death of the third-party cookie does not completely destroy online advertising. So now we're in the era of identity resolution, right? Where advertisers are working to stitch disparate data points on consumers to build profiles for targeting and personalization. So instead of using a cookie, people are looking at email, people are looking at other touch points to stitch who you are, right? Um, we are also in the era of walled gardens, right? Where the big players, Google, Facebook, and Amazon are not making their data available to outside players. So how can advertisers assess whether their ads are effective or not in these, close, in these uh, closed off environments? This is where there's a new technology in the market right now. It's still in beta phases in many respects, but these are data cleaning rooms, right? Data cleaning rooms, which is a relatively new concept uh, designed to help advertisers monitor advertising pacing in these closed worlds. So to answer your question, these are all evolutions that have happened every year or couple of years in line with changes in consumer demand, marketplace forces, privacy regulations, and so on. So analytics and marketing is continuously evolving, and it's evolving in line with the, the, the evolution of technology, for sure. For sure. I think, I think you touched on a really interesting point here and the point was around digital touch points and how much of data that we are actually collecting in fact i recently came across this report by cap gemini that stated that despite having access to literally bottomless bits of data in reality we only end up using 15 percent of that data for our analysis and the question i have here is this this shift towards like the heavy reliance on data, is that really warranted? And how much of it do we actually need to understand consumers? Like, do we need 1500 data points or could we make do with like a really good 10 data points to, to come at the same analysis? Well, um, I would say uh, uh, as far as like um, the use of data, we live in the information age, right? where data is used not just for advertising, but for other use cases as well, right? So data is used in your IoT devices, when your refrigerator or car or your Apple Siri or your Amazon device gives you an update or addresses any question you have. You know, in, in the medical field, patient data is used to streamline patient intake and medical research. So there are good and bad points to 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 everything. So it depends on what, you know, what you choose, what we choose to focus on as far as what, what is good and what is bad. There are good points to use for data and it's also bad. And, um, as, far as, and as far as like, um, as far as um, how much is needed um, to answer that question, there's no such thing as too little data, right? So, um, the question is not really how much of it is needed to understand consumers, but rather whether the proper infrastructure, processes, and people are in place to synthesize all of these disparate data points that companies have about consumers but may exist in silos, right? That is the main challenge. Mm -hmm. So what I just described to you is the driving force behind technologies like CDPs or customer data platforms and these technologies propose to have the ability to ingest data about consumers from multiple and varied data sources uh, and create like these holistic profiles for targeting. So yeah, I'll say there's, not, there's no such thing as too much. The, the question is more, do we have the right resources, talent and people to make good use of, of the data? That's mm -hmm. interesting. It's definitely is because you're having the conversation around like whether we have the right people is also something that we need to take into account because universities and everything, what they know about marketing, what they have been teaching about marketing is, is slowly phasing out, right? Like I remember uh, my marketing professor was talking about print media and how Betty Crocker was like uh, revolutionizing uh, marketing mm -hmm. as we knew it. 
and uh, here I am sitting in the digital age and thinking like, uh, wait, Betty Crocker isn't actually mm-hmm. a person. <laughs> so, uh, so things have moved wrong, and like you rightly said, with every advancement in technology, marketing has evolved mm-hmm. exponentially. Mm-hmm. Actually, so in the position that we have in right now is there's a there's a talk about uh, marketing being a little mm-hmm. too intrusive, and I think. Uh, essentially, that's it's because the lines between marketing and uh, digital mm-hmm. advertising is slowly becoming mm-hmm. a blurry one, and uh, and you know we have documentaries like the Social Dilemma, which is all mm-hmm. the rage right now, and I know it paints a dark picture behind the realities of personalized target social media mm-hmm. advertising, but for uh, but what is it? What is this uh, this conversation that is coming up right now, what is leading to it? I mean, obviously, we know like how ads follow you through multiple channels, through multiple mm-hmm. devices, etc. We have algorithms, like you said, is helping us marketers build like user profiles, uh, and then use us to target ads. That conversation of the person from social media, social dilemma was happening. He said that they are essentially selling our attention and using our psychology mm-hmm. against us. And this brings me down to my next question. Where is the line between personalization and intrusion, mm-hmm. right? What do we do when these algorithms that we designed start working against us? Like how many black swan moments like Cambridge Analytica or like the misinformation around the mm-hmm. current pandemic mm-hmm. that we're having or like QAnon if I'm going to the extreme end, you know. So um, how many of these black song moments do we have before we need to press tr- delete and, you know, rewire us? Right. Um, so there's are two questions. So the first question is, is the line between, where is the line between personalization and intrusion, right? So... Mm-hmm. This question is the reason privacy laws and regulations like the GDPR, which stands for yeah. the, for the General exactly. Data Protection Regulation, which was passed in the European Union, but also impacts the United States. Mm-hmm. It's the reason why the CCPA, which stands for the California Consumer Privacy Act and other regulations like ISO and, and so on exist to give people like you and me more control over our personal data and to regulate how advertisers and companies use personal data. Um, We don't live in a perfect world, but at least we know that there are forces working to balance out the yin and yang or the good and evil, quote unquote, that exist. And um, I think you said something else about how many black swan moments do we need before we start to rethink these, um, these, uh, what do you call it? these algorithms and so on. Um, I think this conversation is happening now on a bigger scale than we've ever seen before, uh, which is why all these changes around privacy uh, are happening, right? It's, it's one of the catalysts for like Google's walled gardens. It's one of the catalysts for the cookie, third-party cookie going away. So these are all quote-unquote good things from a consumer privacy perspective. Um, like I said, and this is, I'm sure will come up later in our conversation. Um, uh, the, the, we, we do live in a, in a free market society um, that has competition and, and we can get to that later. But um, for me personally, I am also impressed by the unique solutions that advertisers are creating on their end to work around these limitations, which, which, and I'm impressed more from a technology perspective, not so much the advertising intrusion perspective, but just more about the ability of these really smart people to come up with these technological workarounds with user stitching uh, to work around the cookie limitations, which I think speaks to um, the, the ever-evolving nature of technology itself, which is what I'm impressed by. That's correct. That, and that's true because like, even if you go back a hundred years, right, with every advancement of technology, marketers have always been quick to adapt. Like we, when the radio launched, we got radio ads. When the TV launched, we got TV ads. Now in the age of internet, we got internet ads, right? It's, 
I mean, that's an oversimplification of 100 years of marketing. But essentially, it's interesting to see where we have come and we've hit, we've hit a moment, mm -hmm. we've hit a roadblock. But like you said, I'm, I'm intrigued too. I'm intrigued to see how people are reacting. In fact, uh, going back a few months, I think sometime last year, there was a lot of Senate confirmation hearings on mm -hmm. with Google, with the execs of Google, Facebook, et cetera, around the conversation around how data is used. Um, and those are really, it's a positive signs, right? Those are signs that, that we're heading in the right direction. People are taking notice. People, policymakers are taking notice. So I think there's a question here. And the question is that, uh, do we actually give control to government? Uh, should data be taxed and regulated? And would it being taxed and regulated uh, allow us to monitor like a more judicious use of data? Or would that be like, uh, like opening a Pandora's box into a whole mm. bunch of other problems. Well, okay. So regarding the government question, um, if you're, if, okay, so I want to keep my answer to the United States, right? Because they're different governments. So I'm going to focus on the United okay. States. Now, if you're referring, if, if we're talking about the United States, I don't think the government in the U.S. has any financial stake into anyone's personal data. However, um, Mm -hmm. The question on if the government should be allowed to regulate data, that has been, to your point, an ongoing discussion for quite a few years, right? So we all know about um, Edward Snowden and his whistleblower revelations regarding the government and, and private consumer data. Yep. Um, so there's no one-size-fits-all answer. Um, on the one hand, government having access to personal data has helped immensely with national security, right? Like terrorism and things like that, if you want to be frank. But on the other hand, to your point, where is that line drawn, right? Where, where's, where's, where, when is it too much? So um, uh, I think that's a conversation, that's a whole uh, uh, discussion in itself. Um, uh, I would say, um, I don't really have an answer to that right now. You know, that's it's it's a it's a yin and yang conversation. You know, on the one hand, it's there. There's a, there's a, there's, a, there's the uh, what's his name Edward Snowden point of view. But on the other hand, access to personal information has helped a lot with like security as well. So it's 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 a it's a delicate conversation. I think I think that deserves its own uh, podcast in itself. <laughs> I I agree. I agree. So. Um, which, which is interesting because if if that's an option and that's an option that's being considered, another option is self-control, right? We as marketers and analysts, we can control the amount of data that we request that we that we, we require for an analysis. What, so what a what a conscious and mindful use of data in the future uh, be something that uh, and I'm not I'm not painting everyone with the same picture. I'm not stereotyping here, but uh, but there are instances where that overabundance or that over reliance of data just makes us want to go out there and get everything that we need, and we don't really know what to do with it. And a lot of it is not saved or uh, saved carefully. You know, there are chance of it being leaked, and. Uh, and every time we hear uh, we hear messages of data being breached or data being hacked, uh, and a lot of PI information getting uh, out there, there's also a conversation about like, did we need that in the first place? And I know that's like first party data, second party data, and it's your own data that's being compromised. But in from a marketing perspective, right? So how? And this is circling back mm -hmm. to the question that I asked earlier. Would as marketers, if you're conscious and if we if we promote the use of mindful use of data, would that change the perspective that we are in right now? Would people uh, like concept like GDPR, CCPA, put all that into the mix? Would that make a difference in the way we look at marketing? Would we remove the spamminess or the intrusionness away from it and bring the con conversation back into what marketing really mm -hmm. is? It's for the people, right? Um. So I would answer your question in two parts. Um, conscious marketing. Um, well, let me, let me just take a, let me take it to, from a higher point of view. America, England, Canada, and most democratic countries have 
uh, have a mixture of, and this is what I was going to say earlier, of free market and capitalistic mm -hmm. business models, right? So these economies mm -hmm. operate on the principles of supply and demand, and in essence, opens the door for competition, which in many ways is one of the driving forces behind innovation. So given this context, I would define conscious marketing as nothing more than personalization, if you really think about it, right? And what I mean by that is conscious marketing, i.e. being keyword conscious of the needs and wants of your target audiences, which, is, which in essence is what marketing is all about. So to your question about um, the, the overabundance of data, I'll go back to what I said earlier, that there's no such thing as too much data. The question is more, do you have the infrastructure, the people and the resources to make sense of that information? Obviously, if it's information that breaches any privacy regulations, you should not be using it. So like PII, like, like anything that's personable and that sort of thing that has not been approved for usage should not be used. And that's what hopefully laws like GDPR and CCPA regulate. Um, but um, in the when it comes back to the conscious marketing conversation, conscious, in my mind at least, conscious marketing is marketing that matters. That's how defined conscious marketing. And that comes down to personalization, knowing what people want and need. So if you if you know what people want and need, you will not be serving irrelevant ads at irrelevant times through irrelevant means. You will be your messaging and your marketing infrastructure will be a bit more focused and you'll be able to ignore data points that don't matter to your uh, objectives, should I say. Um, and in essence, that kind of speaks to your point about data you don't need. If, if you had a, a good sense of who your target market is, who your, um, what their mm -hmm. user journeys are, blah, blah, all that good stuff, um, and you did it down to a science, which is what all these technologies are trying to help you solve, um, there'll be very little wastage and and um, less room for misuse of data. Let me put it that way. Oh, that yeah. 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 Yeah, I agree. I completely agree with that. You know, I think in the situation that we are in right now, it's it's good to understand that what we have versus what we can do and what, what we should be doing. And, and it's, good, it's good news, like you said, like people are taking conscious effort governments are taking notice uh you know companies are getting a lot more uh, stricter on themselves and the way they look at data nowadays so we're definitely heading in the right direction and the future of conscious marketing as we know it uh is 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 becoming more apparent mm -hmm. is what i would mm -hmm. say yeah i would agree so yeah so Let's switch to something a little bit more brighter and uh, let's talk about Hectum's Dictum, which is your online blog. And uh, you've written like a plethora of articles, but the one that really stood out for me was the Around the World series. And it piqued my interest and curiosity to no end. Uh, you briefly spoke about UFC to music and food, and that must be really interesting. Uh, did you travel, meet all these people? How, how, how did that how did that series come to life? What was that right. inspiration? Um, thanks, Arjun. So um, I have, to, to just expand on your point, I have, uh, I think it's six blogs, I think. Um, so Here Comes Dictum, as you as you pointed out, is, is in line with our conversation today, which covers marketing and technology and like business intelligence. Um, I have an architecture blog where I write about architecture and different, you know, buildings and the history of different buildings and things like that. I have a history blog and like, well, I'll call it a travel blog where whenever I travel to a place, I write about, you know, the history of the place and the, you know, the economy and the culture and that sort of thing. Um, I have a food blog that's connected to my travel blog where I talk about the cuisines in each location. 
Um, I have a music blog, which I've not been um, working on lately, uh, only because of time. Um, or I was talking about different musicians, local musicians in each location. I have a martial arts blog, which also does the same thing, talks about martial arts and different locations. And that that one I've been a bit more active on. Um, and yeah, so that's 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 it. And as far as um, your question about what the inspiration and 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 that sort of thing, um, I started out my blogs actually when I wrote my my Ateca book, which we'll get to in a bit. Um, that book takes place across takes place across multiple locations around the world. The plot, and when I was first when I first published it, I was thinking of ways to market the book, and um, I had this idea uh, to create a blog that just talked about the different locations in the book. Um, so that was the first thing I did. I had just one blog mm-hmm. uh, where I talked about, you know, uh, this this country in a book, does this, that, and the other. And then I thought more, I was like, you know what, why don't I make a couple of blogs that, you know, one talks about the everything I just described to you. One talks about the history, another one talks about food, another one talks about martial arts and it just kind of grew from there and then it, and then and then they became the old independent projects <laughs> so um so yeah that was... i mean that's it you literally are a man oh. of all seasons at this point <laughs> random me random me yeah. founded. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, Moving on from Hickton's Hickton uh, is Musings Press, which is a publishing mm-hmm. house. Is also something that you've been running, and you've done everything from like mind-bogglingly mm-hmm. gorgeous phone cases, uh, and and to what it is right now. So again, another another mm-hmm. side hustle, another venture. How do you? How has it been? How has the journey been so far? Like what drove? Yeah. You? So thanks, Arjun. So Musings Press. Um, I was laid off. I can't remember what year it was. And in one of my laid off periods, I was trying to make myself useful. So I started Musings Press. Um, uh, and uh, I was like, you know what? I want to keep my advertising skills sharp, but also I want to get into the product development space and just learn how to build a product from start to finish. So I started with obviously my book. That was a process in itself. Um, I, I, I wrote the book, obviously, and I told myself, I said, you know what? I want to take the challenge of making a, a product that is at par with any book you get from a traditional publishing house. So I, um, I hired a bunch of editors after I wrote the book. We work, worked on a bunch of drafts together to make sure it was professional grade. Um, I did all the research myself. Uh, with a with a few professors I worked with, uh, I worked with layout designers. Everything that all the steps that if you go to a traditional publishing house that they have teams working on, I kind of oversaw myself. So I worked with with editors to edit the book. I worked with layout designers. I worked with ebook designers to put the book in ebook format. I I did. I worked with a front cover designer. I worked with illustrators for the inside, and I kind of oversaw each step of this process and create this product, which I'm very proud of. You know, it was a lot of work that went into it. Um, so that was like, I would say one of the big mm-hmm. products for sale that's under Musings Press is the Teka book. Um, and then there's the phone cases, like you mm-hmm. said, right? So that was a very, very fun project for me. I've not, have, I've not really had time lately to devote to it because of my, like I told you, I'm very loyal to my clients. So they always come first. So um, mm-hmm. I've kind of put that aside for now, but mm-hmm. I had this idea uh, what's her name? Um, Kim Kardashian's sister uh, had this line at the, when I first came out with mine uh, with this lipstick, the lips on the phone kind of thing. But I was like, you know what? I'm going to make phone case. When I was doing mine, that did not exist. And I said, I'm going to make these phone cases where the lips have different attributes. So they could be like weather lips, right? They could be lips that have fire on them or ice or gold or... Um, winter at a winter lips that I designed or, um, you know, flowers, whatever the case may be. So I took my time in Photoshop. I actually designed these lips. I did the whole uh, overlaying and all that kind of stuff. And then I sent the, my designs to my, my fulfillment partner in California, this this company I, I had. And um, yeah, we, it was really fun to see the final product. So come through and I could see it and I it, that, that working with the e-commerce store is a lot of it is also planning your pricing and um, working with your fulfillment partners because so there's a whole pricing 
uh, equation you have to work out because it costs a lot of money to even produce the goods in the first place. You have to work out the pricing for shipping. And so that was a very eye-opening experience for me. I got a lot of hands-on experience. A lot of people we see now working in, you know, in these corporations and agencies who are trying to figure out e-commerce. I actually did it hands-on on my own back end based on the system that I built myself. So, um, it, and that experience helped me a lot. And when I've worked with companies, uh, who are trying to figure out that equation, I already, I had already done it myself. So I could speak, to, I could advise them. So that was, that was fun. Um, so yeah, and it was also a lot of fun, like designing. I'm sure you saw some of the videos, like the the ads on YouTube. That was a lot of fun. I put, I put those together myself too, and that was that was yes, a whole lot of fun. Uh, finding uh, the the uh, the models I worked with, and you know, come up with the concept of how to shoot the videos and edit in the music. That was that was I really enjoyed doing stuff like that. So that was a lot of fun too. I guess that's more on the creative director side of things. So if, I, if I'm just like take a circle back. At every point in your time, in your career, whenever you wanted to try something, your approach has always been hands-on. Your approach mm -hmm. has always been analytical. You've tried it out for yourself. And that gives you a whole new, fresh perspective on how to deal with mm -hmm. problems and problem-solving skills, right? And I think uh, one article that you wrote that really stands out mm -hmm. was that GOAT ranking, right? Uh, and there's so much to unpack here, but in, like... What what drove you to create such a deep, insightful, uh, dare I say, uh, you know, there's no words, you know, I read that article and I was like, well, there's every single point that's been covered in this ranking. So is there some kind of underlining behavior that you learned when you when you studied it? Right. And and what can we learn from observing something like that? Like your analytical abilities translated into something as as vividly entertaining as GOAT is, but it's also very uh, useful mm -hmm. to understand as a performance metric, right? Uh, so can we retrofit this 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 thinking, this this GOAT analysis, if I if I can put it that way, mm -hmm. into other yeah, fields, sure and other subjects so, as well? Just so you know, Arjun, I have my critics for the GOAT ranking. I have these like hardcore, it's funny because I was, um, the other day I was, uh, when when I came out with the GOAT thing, I actually got some press for it, right? Like I think Forbes wrote about my GOAT ranking thing and a few other people. And when, you know, with any kind of attention you get, you're going to get your haters, right? That's that's just understood. So I remember I was reading, I was online yeah. one day and I saw um, on Reddit, um, these, I don't know who these people are, but they, they actually created a whole thread dedicated to me. And, <laughs> and, like, so, and you know what, something, sometimes criticism, there are good points in criticism. So I actually read the, I actually read everything they said. And some of the things they said were spot on. You know, I'm not going to disagree with that. Some of the things they said were spot on. Um, so I'll give you the background for the GOAT index. One day I was sitting, um, I am not a fan of, uh, how do I put this? Um, okay, I love basketball, let me put it there. And I'm not a fan of any award system that is based on subjectivity and opinions especially when data is available, right? So this may, this may be okay for the arts. So for example, most book awards from the Man Booker Award to the Pulitzer and so on and so forth, or most acting awards like the Oscars and the Emmys are usually decided by a panel of people. And that's okay. You know, art is, art is subjective. So you no, know, do your thing over there. Um, but for sports, especially when retroactive data is tracked, and it's available, I think math should play a more prominent role in deciding who gets awards in sports. And I'm not saying the GOAT index is the way, that was just my attempt to solve that problem. Uh, I'm not a statistician by any way. I, I do understand statistics, but I would not call myself a programmer or a statistician. So that was just my humble contribution to the conversation, right? Um, and that's the reason why I created the GOAT index, right? So as far as what I did, when, when, when I first did the first version, I was literally sitting watching the NBA Finals uh, when Kobe Bryant was still alive, God bless his soul. And um, I, I was saying to myself, like, wait, well, let me put together, I'm just, I just literally opened my laptop and I just started like downloading, manually copying data from this website called Basketball Reference into a spreadsheet. I spent like two days doing that. Um, 
for like the top basketball players career wise. And I was like, I want to see who's the best one based on some kind of scoring system. So the way the scoring system works, um, the very, very first version I did was literally, I just put all the players together. I assigned different weights to different metrics and I just scored them. Of course, that's a very basic approach. So then the next version I did, the part two, or let's say GOAT index version beta two or whatever, I decided to take the regular season stats and mesh that with playoff stats, which I had never seen used before in any advanced analytic uh, calculation. And I weighted the playoff stats twice as valuable as the regular season stats. And, um, and I gave different, um, at the time, the first time I did the gold index, I gave different weights to different, different, uh, metrics. But when I did the second one, I weighted all the metrics equally because I just, I could not find any literature anywhere that said, um, you know, um, a foul is worth more than a field goal or whatever, right? I couldn't find anything substantial that spoke to that. So I just kept everything even and I scored all the players. Um, and consistently, this player called Hakeem Olajuwon, I don't know if you're familiar with, with his name, but he came out as a top player, which made sense to me personally, because Hakeem Olajuwon is one of, I think he's the only player in basketball history to, to do a quadruple double, which is getting double-double in four categories. Uh, I don't think there's any other player. And he's done it twice or three times, I don't recall. And I think he's the only player in history to do that. Um, and um, obviously, LeBron James, mm -hmm. in my mind, in the modern era, is is the man, hands down. And I think he's on his way to smashing all kinds of records. In fact, if I was to run the Golden Index today, I think his name would be number one. Um, but that was the idea. And of course, there's room for improvement. I'm, I'm not, you know, when I did it, that was just, it's no different, you know, many years ago when advanced analytics started coming out for basketball, um, there was this guy, I can't remember his name right now, uh, but he created this thing called PER, P-E-R, which is player efficiency rating. And his formula was way more basic than what I did. And he was really celebrated. He was like, people were like, man, you know, he came up with PER and PER is still used today. I think they gave him some job, some sports team for what he did, or I, I don't recall the story. So uh, obviously, Statistics and advanced analytics has improved dramatically since he did his thing in the, in the 90s or whenever he did it. So I'm, I'm saying that to say that um, there's room for improvement with what I created, right? So um, uh, with the, 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 I, have, I have to figure out how to insert context into my numbers so it's not just numbers talking, right? Uh, for example, Michael Jordan... Uh, my, my stuff is strictly based on playoff performance metrics, right? It doesn't factor in other soft cues like Michael Jordan coming back after taking time off to win a championship. These are all soft cues, right? Or, or playing through a flu or Kobe Bryant playing with a broken finger, things like that, right? And I've tried to factor all those things into like some of the metrics, like the win percentage and that sort of thing. Um, there's also some pacing Mm -hmm. um, uh, co comparing players across different eras and some pacing I have to do that, you know, I might have to work with a, with a statistician to kind of smooth out. And also there, you know, I did myself a couple of years ago. I'm pretty sure someone saw what I did and tried to work on it. I'm not, I, like I said, I've not, I've not um, had time to dive into that space in the past like year and a half. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm completely open to wherever it comes up with a better formula than what I did. Uh, but I think what I did, um, one um, was a valid contribution to the advanced MBA advanced analytics world. Um, I stand by that, and this again, it's, always, it's it's a good foundation to build on. So, yeah, that's that, that's that on that. I'm just I'm just blown away right now. <laughs> Because uh, if anything, this conversation has told me it's indicative of your analytical and your storytelling skills, right? And to that extent, I think uh, we we are boiling down to the the overall theme of this podcast. Mm -hmm. That is, how can you breathe life into insights? How do you go beyond data? How do you go beyond analytics? You know, what what is the power of heuristics and qualitative research? 
not in its own, but in conjunction with data and analytics, right? So what is your techniques or your effective strategy to, uh, or your way of, uh, of your way of arriving um, at strategies? So, uh, or the general methodology is um, to arrive at market, you're speaking about marketing, right? Marketing strategy specifically? Yeah. Okay. Especially with marketing strategy, any strategy. That is general, true. Like so, with marketing strategy, strategy, I would say, um, obviously, do your exploratory analysis, right, to understand your target audience, understand all the data points you have at your disposal, um, build customer profiles to the best of your ability, right. Um, build out the journeys that these customer profiles take across all your marketing channels, build out your budget, um, understand their success and pain points and serve them relevant. And when I say them, I mean your, your, your profiles and serve them relevant messaging and experiences at each of these points. And then when you're done with all that, note down your observations, which is where reporting comes in, right? Mm -hmm. Test different hypotheses mm -hmm. from your observations and then do it all over again till you find your sweet spot. And that's when you mm -hmm. truly achieve su su success from a marketing perspective. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that one. I think, I think this is something a lot of people need to hear and I think I'm sure our listeners definitely mm. got something away from this conversation, if not that entire conversation. Uh, so that said, you know, this brings me down to my final question of the day. And that, that is what goes into a mind uh, of a person who's working with data every single day, but you've still managed to keep your abstract side alive. And what I'm, what I'm getting at is the book. Right. We've spoken about the book at multiple times. You've spoken about your journey and how hands on you were in the in the process of writing that book. Right. And we briefly touched on this, but like I really the, the premise of the book is nothing like I've ever read before. And I haven't read the book yet. Mm. It's on my reading list. I'm definitely going to get to that. But just uh, like just that storyline alone, like that's there's so much there. Right. And I'm just reading out a review and the review said it's a well-written, insightful and captivating. The author takes us on a nice journey into what happens when our conscience begins mm. to impact our ability to do the wrong things for money and looking forward to the next installment. I think this is definitely a line that's coming up. Looking mm. forward to the next installment. A lot of people have been asking for it. So uh, walk me through your creative process. Oh, thanks, Roger. Is there going to be um, an installment? So this book, Ateka, Rise of the Imamba, um, is, uh, I was, um, some years ago, I was laid off from work. And I used to have, a, at that point in time, I was working an overnight shift as a laborer. I used to load, I used to load trucks and trailers for UPS overnight for minimum wage. Mm -hmm. And on one of, one night when I was on my way to my, uh, my uh, my station, my, let's just call it that. Um, I was on the bus. This is before I had a car. I was I was I was dirt broke, sitting on a bus, and this idea just hit me out of nowhere. And it said, write a book about mercenaries. So I I wrote the first draft. I, I didn't know what the book. I I just had the idea, and I just wrote the first draft about you know this simple mercenary story. And um, I thought that was, I thought I had something. Yeah, you know, this is great, you know, and I was excited. But what I did not realize was that was just the beginning of what would be close to an eight to 10 year process um, to actually finish the book. Um, so I gave my idea to the powers that be. Uh, I, I call the powers that be God. You can call it whatever you want, you know, the higher power. Um, and I started to meet these interesting individuals. The first individual I met was very randomly, mind you. Um, I met this professor in uh, in a Starbucks cafe, 
I during the day during that period when I was laid off from work, I used to go to this cafe and write down my ideas and apply for jobs and also work on my book, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And it was this old man I used to see sitting at the other end of the cafe. He was a heavy smoker, always smelled like smoke. He's like his whole body was just smoke. And he'd go outside for the smoking breaks, come back in, sit down and read whatever book. And you know when you start to see a familiar face all the time, you just they just become, you know, you just want, over time you just start you kind of either nod your head or acknowledge them when you see them, right? Because you became a regular. So I acknowledged him and then months passed. Right. And then one day, I don't know how, but we just started having a conversation. And um, yeah. I showed him what I was working on. And it turns out this man was a professor of history at, um, I believe it was Farley Dickinson University. I don't know if he's still there. And he gave me, he opened my book up. Like he gave me all these ideas. He taught me, he told me things I did not even know. He was like, you know, go research the Cold War and a lot of the proxy wars that were fought in Africa and a lot of things that were happening with in in uh, in uh, Indonesia and all these things that were happening in that time or even around India, China. And, and that just opened up my, my whole world up about stuff that A, is not really written about in mainstream Western media. And B, it was like a gold mine for like a mercenary story, you know, that I had never seen from a quote unquote minority perspective, right? Most mercenary stories are a bunch of white guys who go do what they got to do, right? You don't, you don't really hear about Indian mercenary as main characters in a, in a, in a thing or African mercenaries as the leads uh, in a project and so forth. Um, so, that was uh, that was uh, the impetus for that, and um, yeah, it just kind of evolved from there. It, I, I, it just grew. I, I just kept on building on the research I had done. Um, I learned a lot about history. Um, I inc- I made sure to include a lot of like real life historical figures um, into the book. But yeah, I made sure to include a lot of. Um, um, historical figures from history and 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 um, and uh, people like uh, Nehru, um, people like um, uh, Amical Cabral from Guinea-Bissau, people, you know, and also some some make-believe names around some characters into the book. I just created this really cool story, you know, this really cool. Um, Bish Bosch that's based on two Nigerian mercenaries and a Nigerian prostitute during the Cold War in the 1990s. You know, very unusual concept. <laughs> but I think, I think I pulled it off pretty nicely. And, um, you know, so far, the, the reviews have been pretty good. So, you know, as far, and as, far as like the part two, um, I had this, when I wrote the first one, I took like a couple years off. I just couldn't, it took so much out of me to put everything together. Um, like I said, I, I did not, not only the writing, but I also did the production. And uh, that just took a lot out of me. So I took some time off just to recenter myself. Uh, and now I'm getting back into it. So hopefully I'll have the sequel done. I'm, I'm aiming to have you know it done by end of next year. So fingers crossed, you know, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Well, I'm interested. I can't wait for it. I'm definitely going to read this one. So this has been great. Like, thank you so much, Ben. And uh, I'd like nothing more to chat with you and swerve off on conversational tangents. Uh, and it, it's been it's been enlightening. It's been amazing. I've learned a lot. I'm thank pretty you. sure others have also. So thank you, Arjun. Thank I appreciate your here. time. Like, thank you for having really me on your podcast. This has been. Uh, wonderful time i've enjoyed talking to you and i'm i hope your listeners um gain something from our conversation for sure i sincerely hope so too so thank you for tuning in and we hope you were able to assimilate information gain context or learn how to build a better and cleaner more insightful insights you know once again thank you ben for taking time off your busy schedule And this is your host signing off. Until next time, be human, stay courageous, and remember to think like Maya.